you should be so nervous because <laughs> we just started. We're recording, okay? We're recording. This season, we're talking about who we are at our core and um, thinking about the ways we share our identity with other people. You're one of the first people I thought of, Cheryl. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi. You really? <laughs> yeah. I'm flattered. I really, truly <laughs> am. I want to make a joke, but... I bet it would be really funny. You know, maybe... Is it because I'm brown? You thought of me because I was brown, didn't you? Jokes, jokes, jokes. I'm Cheryl Phillips. I am a woman. I'm Indian. And I met Meta when I went to Zion Lutheran, where she told me I had no pressure to become a member. <laughs> and you didn't. I didn't become a member. <laughs> but me I seriously. felt guilty for it for the longest oh, time. Good. good. That was the point. <laughs> that Lutheran guilt. <laughs> I mean, it ran deep for me. That deep. was not all on me, though. You had plenty of Lutheran guilt already. This is very true. I think I just had human guilt, you know. <laughs> I thought of Cheryl because her identity has a lot of layers, and I've been watching her navigate the way she wears and speaks about those layers since we met several years ago. Sometimes we identify based on the spaces we occupy and the way other people, people with power, are seeing us. This can be by choice, because we are weary, outnumbered, or we don't want to do the work for other people who have already categorized us. And sometimes it just happens because so much of our energy is spent decoding unfamiliar systems or surviving that we don't have much time or awareness left to figure out how to be fully ourselves right then and there. I sat down with Cheryl to hear more about her layers of identity, her different spaces, because she's funny and wise and she has traveled more of the world and herself than I ever will. Listening to her story is teaching me all kinds of things about how I show up in my body, in my spaces. Maybe she'll have something to say to the layers of you, too. Here's Cheryl. Yes. Okay, so I'll start. Not to give you my entire life story. I won't no, tell you it. when I was born and all of that. But <laughs> I was born and raised in Bangalore, India, till about nine and a half. Um... I come from the Jesus business is what I like to call it. <laughs> um, my great grandfather was a sadhu. Um, and I think the closest thing that you could say to that, that people would understand is like being a guru. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the St. Thomas Christian tradition back in India. And then my, no, that was my great, great grandfather. And then my great grandfather was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. My father is a pastor. And uh, my grandparents were missionaries. My mother is a theologian. So Jesus is kind of like our family business. Jesus LLC. Yes, right here. Um, but we come from the St. Thomas Christian tradition in India. So we're one of the ancient churches. It's said that St. Thomas or Disciple Thomas came to India and established seven churches. And we trace our line back to one of those seven churches. So if you ask me the one question that like, irks the crap out of me is when someone asks me, so when did you become Christian? Mm -hmm. Because 
as far as my community goes, we believe that we've been Christians since the first century and that we've known nothing else. You win. We win. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> um, so I come from that incredibly rich tradition. And so I share that to say that I was not born and raised Lutheran. Um, and I was born and raised in a church that does not ordain women. I was born and raised in a church that doesn't always make space for women. And that has become a huge challenge for the church today and especially as it thinks of its survival here in the west um our community is a very small community we all come from the state of kerala which is in southwest india um but it's also a place of incredibly rich tradition values of family values of community and i feel like that has always carried on so anyway moved to the states um lived in a very migrant neighborhood in philly and then lived on the south side of Chicago because that's where my parents went to seminary. Um, went to LSTC, Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Woo-woo. Not a graduate, but a huge supporter because I lived there for a solid seven years of my wow. life. It was a long time. It was a long time. Um, but growing up in the south side of Chicago, Hyde Park is a protected neighborhood on the south side. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of higher ed institutions that are like the University of Chicago. Um, and so it was a neighborhood, again, that was a pretty white space, but the spaces that I existed in were not white. Um, when I was first introduced to the Lutheran Church, I went to all of the multicultural mission institutes, um, that the ELCA used to hold. So as far as I was concerned, the ELCA was an incredibly brown <laughs> church, <laughs> like very, very brown, um, and then I went to high school, which is predominantly African-American. It was in the 90s, African-American, and the rest of us were considered other. Because we came from so many different yeah. backgrounds that they couldn't quite slice and dice who was what. Um, and it wasn't until I was 18 that I realized how white America, the United States really is. Cheryl wasn't a first-generation U.S. college student but her parents were still new to the college application process. So her discernment process was really simple. She was going to go wherever she could get the best scholarship. That school was St. Olaf College, a small liberal arts school in rural Minnesota, about an hour south of the Twin Cities. It's my alma mater too. I really wanted to go to the University of Cape Town that was shut down real fast. <laughs> really wanted to go to Pepperdine in Malibu, California. That was also shut down really fast. That that makes a lot of top 10 lists, at least for a yes. visit. Yes. You really need to go see exactly. it Exactly. Gotta go, gotta go. And then St. <laughs> Olaf was where I ended up. Um, I consider it the foremost um, challenging years and also four of the most formative years. Um, prior to being at Olaf, I never had to articulate my identity as a person of color, as an immigrant, as a woman. Um, people just kind of saw you and accepted you. They never asked too many questions. And I never felt that the skin I wore and the ways in which I presented myself ever excluded me from a space. Mm. And I know that was because I walked in predominantly black and brown spaces up until I was 18 in this country. And it was only at Olaf that 
I felt excluded for the first time. And I didn't know how to confront it. So my freshman year was was a lot of me inside my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trying to understand what was happening around me um, and why it was happening. When Cheryl left for college, her parents and brother moved to rural northern Illinois to serve a parish. They were the only family of color in town and were experiencing similar feelings and headspace like Cheryl, but in a totally different role and setting. Now looking back, I think it shocked all of our bodies and all of our spirits in ways that we're still trying to navigate today. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just remember struggling to even talk to my parents about it because in our conversations, I realized very quickly they were going through it too. Um, and yeah, it was, you, all of a sudden you felt like you didn't know where to turn Yeah. Um, And you were all using a lot of emotional labor to do your own stuff. And so mm -hmm. how do you be there for each other and try to try to translate each other as well? Yeah. And I think a lot of Oli's, my peers were shocked because, again, I'd lived in this country at that point. We moved in, what, 97 and I went to school in 2006. It was we'd lived here for a while. Um, And so they were like, we don't understand Why is this all strange to you? (laughs) (laughs) Cheryl's friends didn't understand the work she was doing, day in and day out at college. It took a lot of energy to code switch between her many identities and the dominant culture at school. These translations might have been subtle to white students at St. Olaf, and maybe invisible if they were also American-born and raised in the Lutheran tradition. I'm about six years older than Cheryl, so we weren't at St. Olaf at the same time. But if we were, I'm sure I would have been totally dense to what she was experiencing. Well-intentioned, nice, naive, yes. But these are just the necessary ingredients for an unhelpful Minnesotan who keeps the status quo and dominant culture chugging along. I hadn't given much consideration to how the Nordic roots of the school, my church and my family tree were too often conflated to define Lutheranism, and that by not articulating my faith by its theology, I was sending a really clear message to people of color on campus. This isn't for you. Now, years later, I'm embarrassed and ashamed, wondering if I've ever pushed Ludafisk on someone as though it's a religious rite of passage. If I've ever asked a person of color in the Lutheran church, how did you become a Lutheran? Lord have mercy, I probably did. Who have I excluded or ignored with my good intentions and my comfort in the same spaces that have made Cheryl uncomfortable? I asked Cheryl what effect this environment had on her body and the way she decided to present and identify herself during college. So is there as an international student So an F1 student visa, but I identified more closely with the domestic multicultural students because of my upbringing. Um, But I remember at Olaf, I mean, there was like at that time, I don't think I hope it doesn't exist today. There was a clear, solid line between international students and domestic multicultural students. And it was also for me having a foot in both of those spaces. Mm -hmm. I think there was a part of me that definitely 
I showed up as an Indian more than ever um, at Olaf. And I made it very clear that being Indian is not listening to Bollywood, is not eating naan, and is not having elaborate five-day um, weddings, <laughs> a wedding ceremony. Um, and I made it very clear that I'm South Indian. Um, it was the first time that I started claiming not just the fact that I was Indian, that I'm, that I'm a Malayali, and that I am South Indian. And I said, I don't eat naan. I eat chapati and Kerala parota. And I eat beef. Like my state is known in India for its beef. Um, I don't know any Hindi. I don't come from North India. I speak Malayalam. Um, it was the first time that I also made an effort to learn to be fluent in Malayalam. Oh. Um, I don't think it was until 18. I always would pride myself of being able to understand the language and carry a mild conversation. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean... We still had relatives back home in India. Um, and it wasn't that my my skills were terrible, but it wasn't until Olaf where I made the conscious decision that this is the language I want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, because I also wanted folks to know that India is not just one thing. Yeah. It is a lot of things and it's a lot of people. Um, so yeah, Olaf, I think that first year was really clinging on to what, understanding what my identity as an Indian Mm-hmm. meant um and then i also made the conscious decision that year to essentially not out myself as being a pastor's kid um or the fact that i am lutheran mm-hmm. and i that's actually something that i regret Cheryl was an international student, but she'd been living in the States for nine years. Like many students, she was from the Chicago area, but she'd been living on the south side of Chicago. Her dad was a Lutheran pastor, but she wasn't raised in a Lutheran congregation. She grew up a St. Thomas Christian, part of an ancient church in India that dates back to the first century. So Cheryl spent a lot of time during college trying to understand the uniqueness of these identities before she could understand the spaces in which she lived. India, Chicago, and St. Olaf. Cheryl's little brother had a very different introduction to the Lutheran Church. While Cheryl was at college, her brother was finding community as part of a multicultural leadership group for youth. My brother was surrounded by young black and brown Lutherans. And yes, I also attended Mile, but I attended Mile when I was younger and I was still a little bit more fobby, fresh off the boat. Um, (laughs) My brother, on the other hand, had moved to the United States when he was four. So Mm -hmm. he had the way in which we experienced even attending Mile was a little bit different. I feel like I experienced it a little bit more as a foreigner than I did as a person like someone who was born and raised in the United States. Okay. So I think that was why for my brother also that he was, he understood the language and was, um, he was a cool kid and I definitely was not. Again, if you know what, (laughs) people people who like know what a fob is, like know exactly what I'm trying to say. I was not, you know, I was just like, I was there 
trying to like figure it all out. Also, I was there with my dad. <laughs> I mean, there were no other like people going to mile the first time I went. So it was like me and my dad. It's the first time he wore shorts in public. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and if you ask him to this day, what did he love about the youth gathering back in, I think, 2003? He'll tell you, oh, my God, 30,000. No, at the time, it was more than that. Youth communion in 20 minutes to this very day. The man is dumbfounded. And he took communion in shorts. In shorts. <laughs> and he swayed and danced a little. I hope he never hears any of this. We won't tell him about this. Cheryl graduated from college and started looking for a job in 2010. This wasn't the height of the recession, but the economy wasn't in recovery mode yet either. Her mom was the one who suggested international aid and a connection to Lutheran World Relief. Cheryl was just as surprised as the rest of us to be working in a Lutheran organization. But the real shock came a few months in, when she realized all the cultural Lutheranism she'd absorbed by osmosis during college. She could talk about Christmas Fest and church-affiliated summer camps and the communion liturgy. She had all the small talk she needed to start building relationships with staff and donors. Who knew that would end up paying off? And they were just like cultural Lutheran things. Yes. That I was, it was like, I was in, I was in the club. And mm -hmm. it was the first time I was like, oh my God, four years of that place. Whoa. Some of this stuff this stuck. stuck. <laughs> um, and you don't realize, I mean, it's college, you're constantly absorbing everything around you. Um, and I sometimes I'm like, thank you, St. Olaf, for like getting me fluent in cultural Lutheranism for the Upper Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, so that was how that happened. And I mean, I loved the work at Lutheran World Relief. Um, and I loved it the most because for the first time I was introduced to development. Um, and by development, I mean fundraising. Um, Ka-ching. Ka-ching. I always thought I wanted to do development on the ground, like programmatic work. And I realized mm -hmm. I like shoes way too much. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm not going to do that. And my gifts are in, in fundraising. So, um, love that work. But again, as the years went on at LWR and I lived up here in the Twin Cities, I let myself for the first time, um, be open to what it meant for me to be a Lutheran. Mm -hmm. Um, it took me a long time to come to Zion Mm -hmm. I didn't really go to church my first year here. Um, I just kind of roamed around and slept in on Sundays. It was a good life. A lot of Lutheran Church of the Brunch. Oh, you know it. Um, yeah. But it was one of the first times where I started exploring what it meant for me to be a brown Lutheran. Um, and as I did that, there were definitely spaces where I felt very welcome um when I say spaces I want to say with people mm -hmm. um and you I would consider you one of those people so conversations and relationships yes yes felt safe um where I felt safe where again I felt that my voice and my person it wasn't ornamental um you wanted to hear the hard things that I had to say it was one of the first times where I could say that when I was at Olaf, 
and this is right after graduation, 22, 23, one of the first times I was saying out loud, like, I was upset that I couldn't be a Lutheran at St. Olaf. Mm-hmm. Um, in the ways that you were expected to be a Lutheran. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say expected because I do think there was an expectation of how you conducted yourself as a Lutheran at that institution. Yeah. Um, and I was not going to do that. <laughs> I was that person and I still am the person who will say like, where's there room for um, persons from the margins? Mm-hmm. How are we moving the center intentionally from where it is today to the margins? Mm-hmm. Um and there just there wasn't room for that um, as a Lutheran when I was in college, and I was hopeful, and I still am that there's room to be that person mm-hmm. in our church today, and that you wouldn't have to do it alone. That people who are thinking about doing that don't look at the amount of work that needs to be done in order to move the center toward the margins yes. and feel like. Am I the only one thinking about this? Am I the only one who knows that this matters and w- yes. and wants to push on this? Because yes. that's that is not that is not work for one person or right. only black and brown people. Yes, or only people um, without a seat at the table where decisions are actually made. When Cheryl went by Mia in college, a shortened version of her middle name, it was because people told her that Cheryl Phillip sounded like an old white lady. But eight years into her career and development with Lutheran organizations, she goes by Cheryl again and says she surprises people whenever she shows up. You you surprise people on many levels when yes. you show up. Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, I am I, I'm I'm young. Because I was doing, I started doing this when I was 22, so I was young. I was a, a young brown, a woman, and then once you heard my story, you realize I'm an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all things that otherized me. Mm-hmm. The one thing that wasn't the other is the fact that I'm Lutheran, and. Initially, I wasn't showing up as a brown Lutheran. I was showing up as a St. Olaf Lutheran. Yeah. So like I said, those four years really armed me yeah. to be a good Upper Midwestern Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Um, but the great thing is, as I got to know each of these members of our church, as I got to know our church, um, I slowly started doing that less. I showed up as Cheryl, Mm -hmm. immigrant Lutheran, Mm -hmm. Um, because as I, after I showed up as Lutheran, St. Olaf Lutheran Cheryl, I very quickly realized that not all, but some of the folks that I was working with wanted to know, but what is it like for you to be a brown Lutheran in our church? Mm-hmm. And some people will hear that question and go, oh, how dare they ask that question? Oh my God, that's so offensive. No, no. People are curious. And if you're not willing to have that conversation and be open, 
mm-hmm. and vulnerable, nothing's going to change. Right. And if they're asking it for the sake of being moved themselves, mm-hmm. instead of gearing up to make sure that you like Ludafisk, so you're really <laughs> in. Yes. There's a big difference there. Yes. Yes. In the way that you are being offered space and voice and curiosity and love that you deserve. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, when someone's asking out of judgment Mm -hmm. and when someone is asking out of observation. Yeah. You're no fool. Yeah. I I like to think (laughs) that. Cheryl is currently working at the ELCA Churchwide and Major Gifts. She's still hanging out in the Lutheran Church after all these years because so many people keep walking into this space with her, building relationships, expressing curiosity and gratitude for who she is and all the blessings she has to offer the church. And I think of the donors that I get to work with today and so many of them. I mean, we have we have hard conversations. Um And I sometimes wonder, what do my colleagues and my peers who are white, what are those, what are their conversations like? Um, I just love that, not, again, not with all of the folks that I work with, but with many of my fellow Lutherans, I can sit and have a conversation about racial injustice. Mm. Um, and about gender injustice and about immigration. Um, and sometimes we don't, we're not on the same page. We don't agree with one another, but we agree that as Lutherans, we still need to show up. Um, and that we need to push and pull in different directions so we can get to a better place. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love that. I love, I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, our church. And in doing so and in having those conversations with people you agree with and people you don't agree with, you are helping them practice and embody um, a Lutheran identity that is more than, than the cultural facade uh, that, you, that you saw when you were at St. Olaf. You're helping them practice thinking about what it means to embody a tradition and um, and move the center and change over time and care about the things that actually matter Yes, and unite a people. Yes. And it's just been so wonderful because I mean, yes, you have to show up to protests. Yes. You have to speak out. Um, and there are big public things to do. And I've always been that person, and I think this is a reflection of both of my parents, because as much as my mom can rile up her room, I think her greatest strength and my father's greatest strength is in the small things that they do and the little movements that they make. Um, and so I believe in the little everyday movements that you can make that, actu- that will move the center. Cheryl sees her church moving the needle and making investments towards something they might not get to see in this lifetime. But their actions move Cheryl. I know in their actions, they're saying to me and to folks who look like me and identify as I do, 
we see you, you matter, and it's time for us to sit down. Um, and that's been incredibly powerful for me. Yeah, no one's ever said that out loud to me, but I'm like right now, I'm seeing individuals I have worked with my fellow Lutherans flash before my face because through their actions, they've said that immigrants, people of color, women, LGBTQIA+, millennials, millennials, differently abled individuals, those who identify and maybe that don't identify, but that the margins matter. And I think that's what the power of what being Lutheran is. I hear Cheryl asking the whole church to show up, to push the center, to be changed by people in our churches and communities who do not blend into the dominant culture. She understands the importance of honoring our roots and our heritage, but says we're no longer honoring them when our focus there keeps us from using our wings to fly, to move, to be transformed. We can celebrate the growth of the global church on the continent of Africa, but that doesn't mean we can't be a colorful church here in the United States too. We can serve and love the poorest of the poor around the world, but are we doing the same for the forgotten here in our own country? The Lutheran Church is very present with aid and development work in India, and these programs focus their resources and relationships on the Dalit community, the lowest and poorest people in the Hindu caste system, also known as the untouchables. So caring about Dalits in India, it's important and we must do it. But what about the Dalits right here in the United States? There are lots of people who are at the bottom rung for a lot of reasons. Who is the Dalit that's sitting here in the United States? Who is the Dalit who's sitting in your boardroom? And is that Dalit more than just an ornament? Are you going to hear that person's voice? And then are you going to take action? Mm-hmm. Who's the Dalit, Dalit in your congregation? Who's the Dalit who's sitting on the bus with you? And I think it's time for us as a church Yes, we must care about what happens globally. I'm not yet a U.S. citizen, so please do care about the rest of the globe. (laughs) Um, and, And how do we care right here in the United States as well? What could the church look like if we are always pushing the center toward the outside? toward layers and identities that deconstruct the way we've been seeing and doing things for far too long. I'm grateful for Cheryl's layers and identities, for her humor and voice and presence in a church that is changing ever so slowly. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Cheryl, I have good news. Alter Guild is helping her launch her own podcast in 2019. It'll be called For the Love of Humanity, and it will be conversations about philanthropy. Cheryl has a lot of wisdom to share about how we can reimagine financial stewardship and abundance for the next generation. We'll keep you posted about her podcast and a launch date once we get our act together. Thanks again, Cheryl. Stay tuned, everybody.
Alter Guild is hosted by Maytahara Carlson, Matthew Ian Fleming, Miriam Samuelson Roberts, and Derek Transgard, with edits by Matt and Derek. You can visit our website, alterguild.org, that's A-L-T-E-R, and find us on Facebook at Alter Guild. We are brand new to Instagram this week, blowing up with like five and a half followers so far as Alter Guild podcast. So find us. You could be the one to send us soaring into double digits. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for a brand new episode. In the meantime, go in peace. Listen, love, serve, and alter. <laughs>